Indeed, O oh God, we delight in knowing the God who flung this universe into existence. We believe and are, are privileged to do so that you are not only the maker of the heavens and the earth, you are the redeemer of your people. You are a God who saw fit to provide a means by which sinners could be saved, a God who is willing to be reconciled in your Son, Jesus Christ. And in that name we gather this morning. We gather to worship the thrice holy God, the God who made, the God who redeemed, and the God who has promised to come again to set right all that sin has made wrong. And we pray, O oh God, that you will find awaiting that great day a people who have fallen in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and are longing for to know him more and to know him better. We pray, O oh God, that our worship service might please you today, that you might find in the pews of this church hearts that are warmed and are consecrated to the God that we sing about in our hymns this morning. Our Father, it seems that our nation is headed towards the inevitable war that looms on the horizon. We would pray that you would help us to avoid that. But Father, if you are leading this nation into this battle, I pray that you will give to our leaders the greatest of wisdom and the greatest of humility as we make decisions as a nation to take the lives of numerous people who are not our enemies. And I pray, O oh God, that you will guard this land from the same kind of destruction, uh, uh, people killing people who are not enemies, people who have determined because of whatever their religious convictions, that Americans must die. I pray, O oh God, that before any other bloodletting it takes place, that the gospel will be announced clearly and forthrightly, that you might use this land as an agent of redemption, not as an agent of destruction. I pray also, Father, for the, the families that limp in here this Sunday Marriages that have been damaged, families that have been discouraged and depressed by the, the effects and ravages of sin. I pray for parents that you might give them wisdom as to how they might best raise their children. Oh God, we are a poor and needy people. We stand in need of your grace and mercy on an, in an ongoing way. Shower us with a fresh supply of your mercy and grace. Now, Father, accept our gifts. They are small, but we pray that you'll use every dime to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the one who taught his people to pray, saying together, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, which I think you know what is to be found there. Maybe the best thing that I could do for you in this, uh, as we close out this series on uh, the family or marriage, actually, is to recommend this book to you again. Um, this is available to you in our bookstore, uh, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. I've alluded to it in the past. I won't be alluding to it this morning, but it will be very profitable for you. It's a, it's a unique treatment of the subject of marriage. Well, maybe not unique, but um, uh, unusual, different, uh, out of the ordinary. And I, I think you will prosper by reading it. So uh, maybe if nothing else, you'll pick up the book and, um, and find it helpful to you as uh, you try to build a marriage that's honoring to Christ. My text is really one verse, but before I get to that verse... I want to show you something in the book of Exodus, actually in the 20th chapter of Exodus. Um, I want you to notice how it begins in uh, verses, actually in verses 1 and 2. This is called uh, the preface or the prologue to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments really don't start until verse 3. There is a, there's a prologue to it, and it's stated very simply uh, like this. And God spoke, spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason that I want you to notice that is, do you, do you see that this passage of Scripture is directed to God's people? These are people who are already out of bondage. These are people who have already tasted of God's delivering grace. These are people in whom God has already entered into a covenant relationship. Now, as such, he turns to those people who are already in a covenant relationship with him and issues... A code of ethics. And to the people of God, he says, my text this morning, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. If you were here last week, you know that the subject was rather difficult. It doesn't get any easier this morning. By the text, I think you can perhaps figure out that um, our subject this morning is infidelity. I, um, I hope that even though those are two very troublesome subjects that both last week and this week will be um, will really end on a positive note even though the subjects are so ugly I entitled my sermon The Scourge I did so because after 27 years of listening to story after story after story of marital dysfunction, I've come to the conclusion that the most frequent 
subject or the most frequent uh, ruiner of marriage is not spousal abuse, nor is it irreconcilable differences, insoluble problems. But by far, in my experience, the most frequent destroyer of marital, of marital enjoyment is infidelity, which led me to view infidelity as the scourge on the marital landscape. I have a friend who is a, um, who is an oncologist. For those of you who don't know, that's, that's a cancer doctor. And uh, our relationship has flourished over the last four or five years. And But early on in our relationship, I remember being with him and um, um, saying something rather flippantly. You know how I can do that. <laughs> kind of loose of tongue. Um, and and I, I said to him something like, um, I mean, we were kind of jousting about and playing around together. And, and I said something about, oh, we're all going to die of cancer. And a look came across his face as if, you know, our relationship is, is really in jeopardy right now, big boy. He looked at me and, and um, with, with kind of tense eyes and pursed lips and, and grinding teeth, he said, don't you ever say that again. And, and as I've grown to love this oncologist... I discovered that he hates cancer. He hates it. Because he sees what it does, the ravages that it brings about in the human body. And the people whose lives are destroyed and are never the same. He was telling me recently about a young man who is 24 years old and, and has now developed cancer. And his prognosis is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And it looks like they'll whip the cancer and this young man will be fine. But he said his, his life will never be the same. He was talking about insurance and, and, and the ways in which this disease is going to affect this young man's life for the rest of his life. And you can understand, and, I, and I've, I've uh, learned to walk very reverently around the subject of cancer around my friend. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't fix bodies. Actually, I don't fix anything. But I try. And I'm an agent of fixing things. And the things that I hear the most about have to do with the devastation of marriages. And I want you to know something. I've grown to hate it. I've grown to hate infidelity. Not that I'm above it. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no sin of which I could not be guilty. I am not at this point yet guilty. But that doesn't mean that tomorrow I couldn't be. But I'm simply saying I've grown to hate it. I, I, I'm telling you, one of my, my most embarrassing moments behind a pulpit was about six years ago when I did a, a, a series on that commandment contained in verse 14. 
And I, I'm telling you, I almost busted a gut behind the pulpit. I've never been that wild. I've been wild. But I've never been that wild before. And, and, and I want you to know that I'm not trying to make excuses for being out of control behind the pulpit. Never should there be such a thing. But I'm telling you, I've grown to hate it. Every mention of it is repugnant to me. Because I've seen the damage and the devastation that it brings to families and children and churches. It's a scourge, ladies and gentlemen. It's a blight. It's a cancer. Now, I am by no means suggesting that every unhappy marriage involves infidelity. I'm simply saying that in my experience, it is far and away the most frequent and I, and I would add the most devastating problem that's ever brought into my office when we're dealing with the issue of marital dysfunction. Nothing so wounds a partner. You know, someone with whom I have, I have shared my dreams and my fears and my body and my secrets. Nothing so wounds a, 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 a partner like the discovery of a marital betrayal. You know, gang, admit it, we're all so blasted insecure in the first place. Without that... And then you throw that thing into the mix, and we're basket cases. At present, and, and again, once drawing from my experience, at present, infidelity is an epidemic. The, the stats vary from book to book, but very honestly, the stats don't even matter. You're not concerned whether 35% of marriages have... It doesn't matter... If indeed this cancer creeps into your home, all you care about is, is recovering from this powerful blow that you've taken at the solar plexus of your relationship. Now, ladies and gentlemen, can you recover from marital infidelity? Yes. Yes, you can. If two people are willing to slog through the pain and the anger and, and all of the issues that got them there, they can save their marriage. And there are countless couples in this church that are living testimonies to that fact. And as I, I close this morning, I, I want to offer you some suggestions as to what might hopefully help if this is something that you're uh, you're facing. But before I get to that, I want to begin by taking a a a sophomore stab at analyzing. I by no means am claiming to be an expert, ladies and gentlemen. I've heard my share of it. I'm sorry to say so I say again, it's a, it's a, perhaps a simplistic, sophomoric stab at analysis, but here goes. 
Here's my one and only insight of the morning. And it's one that you probably had long before you came in here this morning. Infidelity is not about sex. Infidelity is about our own brokenness. And the affair is nothing more than an attempt at self-medication. The affair provides a, a temporary analgesic to a throbbing, soulish wound that I had long before any affair. Ladies and gentlemen, the epidemic of infidelity has not been brought on by your mean-spirited wife or your hard-hearted husband. Infidelity is rampant because of our desperate need for love and our relentless, frantic pursuit of some kind of balm that we can apply to our bruised and battered souls. Infidelity is not about something physical, ladies and gentlemen. It's about something soulish. Something far more fundamental and basic. Listen to this. I, I hope the point will get across. Go back with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Not literally, just in your mind's eye. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve. Garden of Eden. Satan. Temptation with an apple. The fall. All of that. Now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Eve did not eat that apple because she was starved. She did not eat the apple because she was hungry. She ate the apple because she believed a lie. Gang, her problem wasn't her spouse. Neither is yours. Did you hear that? Your problem is not your spouse. The problem is you believe the lie too. And it's a lie that has been perfectly tailored to each individual. But it has at its core always the same basic element. The, 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 at, the, at the core of this lie that we buy into is the idea that if I'm ever going to be happy, I'm going to have to go outside the protective walls of virtue. If I could state it more simply, if I'm ever going to be happy, I'm going to have to disobey. You know, gang, it would be easier if it were only about sex. But people have empty buckets, emotionally. Buckets that, that have holes in the bottom. And so off we go seeking to meet our own needs in our own self-prescribed way. And we end up with more brokenness. Now guys, here's the news that must break through. 
And I prayed last night that it would. You must get this. My woundedness will never be healed by medicines that I myself concoct. My bucket is never going to fill up by pouring into it water that I've drawn from wells polluted by sin. Do you believe that? If you do not, ladies and gentlemen, it will shape your behavior henceforward. I am never going to fill up my bucket by pouring into it water that I drew from wells that are polluted with sin. It's never going to work. It's a lie. It's a lie of the devil that I can somehow design a scheme by which I can address that ache that goes deep inside me. Anytime I base my hopes of fulfillment on something that can be taken from me, I will always live on the fragile, anxious edge of insecurity. Anytime I am counting on something that can be taken from me, to give me fulfillment, I am going to live a life that is always on the edge of insecurity. So every time I try to medicate my pain away and inevitably fail, my wound gets bigger. Gang, I'm 55 years old and I've listened to my share Trust me, in this next sentence, at least, I have never met a man or woman yet, not one, not one who has ever told me that as a result of their affair, their life is happier. But you think you're going to beat the curve. What kind of fool? Chases off into a piece of what they think will be solution with that kind of data staring them in the face. I have never yet met one woman, met one man who has ever said to me, as a result of my infidelity, I'm a far happier person. Not only have they not said that, They've said the opposite. It's always some degree of fatal attraction. You remember that movie? Some of you are too young to remember it. But it's... Actually, I wouldn't even recommend that you look at it. But Actually, I didn't look at it. I just know what the, party, the theme was about a man having an affair and this woman ending up homicidal and... Gangs, um, you've got to believe this. That you're never going to fill up your bucket. You're never going to fill up the emptiness and address the woundedness 
if you decide that you have to go outside the protective walls of righteousness, it ain't ever going to work. What you're going to do is you're going to drop a little nuclear bomb right into the center of your relationships, your family, your life. And all of a sudden you'll wake up one day and you'll look back and you'll see a scorched earth. You'll wake up. But before you do, you will have done enormous damage. And you'll discover that you've been sleeping with the enemy. And that you believed a lie. Just like Eve. Gang, the real issue in the violation of the seventh commandment is the violation of the first commandment. Did you see it? It goes like this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Gang, John Calvin used to say that the human heart is a veritable factory of idols. And for our purposes this morning, the, the, the idol that we have enthroned is personal happiness. That is, we have deified personal happiness. And infidelity is the drug of choice to produce the happiness that we so worship. Our God is not Jehovah. Our God is personal happiness. And we think we can produce it via another person and sex gets thrown in. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in the face of that hellish, devilish lie, let me offer you the truth. There is a way to experience the pleasure of sex without making pleasure the idol of your existence. And here's the way, the only way. It is to enthrone the Lord God Almighty at the center of our desires. To enthrone the Lord God Almighty at the center of our desires and discover that in His presence is fullness of joy. To have anything else in that place is a pathetic human attempt at meeting needs that can only be met by Him. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not up here because I'm angry. I'm up here because I love you. And if you don't believe that, what's going to happen is... You're going to make a choice that is going to devastate you. I remember Steve Brown used to say that he got so frustrated as a pastor because it was like people who would go right up to the edge of a cliff and they would be dancing at the edge of the cliff, you know, just going to town. And he'd say, uh, um, you're going to fall off that cliff. 
No, no, I'm playing. And they'd keep on dancing. And he'd say, wait a minute, you need to, you're right, you're, you're on the edge there. You need to move back over here, please. Please come on back over here. And they'd keep dancing. And all of a sudden, well. Gang, um, the more we try our own devices, the more we will fail and the more people will get hurt. This commandment was given by a God who loves his people and knows what is best for his people. And he says monogamy is best for his people. Anything outside the protective walls of virtue is going to hurt you. St. Augustine has been quoted a thousand, oh gosh, a thousand times in this church. I mean, he, he's quoted again and again. But the quote is well known, and it's well known because it's such a wonderful quote. But it goes like this. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Gang, I said this on the first edition of Seven Sermons on Marriage. I said this. I said, hurt people hurt people. I could modify it a bit. Wounded people wound people. And here's the news. We're all wounded. (laughs) We're all wounded. The question is, what is it that you think will address your wounds. That, I think, is the issue. We're all wounded. What do you believe will address those wounds? What do you think will heal and fill the gaps that you feel? What what do you think? What do you believe in? Because all of us want the restlessness to go away. The difference is what you choose will be based on what you believe. Augustine said this, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Now, do you believe that? If you don't, you will probably go outside the protective walls of virtue only to discover that what I've been saying is true. Now, can you survive a marital affair? Yes, you can. If I could offer some advice to both spouses first, or to the spouse who had the affair first, sever all contact with the third party immediately. Definitive boundaries need to be established If you ever want to rebuild trust in your relationship, definitive boundaries must be established. If necessary, be rude. Threaten to call the police. But do what you have to do to get those phone calls and those emails stopped. Not another. Not another letter. Not another phone call. It's not that you need to call and break up. None of that. It's over. Stop it. No more contact. 
Secondly, you must be willing to answer any question that your spouse wants to ask. That's not because your partner is wise in needing to know all the details. But you must display willingness to give them whatever information they want. It's a, it's a step. It's an important step to rebuilding trust. You must come clean if that's what's asked of you. Now, to the spouse who has remained faithful, my dear friend, only ask those questions that you really want to know the truth to. What I'm saying is some things are better left unsaid if you can pull that off. You don't need to know the details. If you can do that, if you can live with that without the details, it's better that you not have them. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you. More information is not necessarily going to help you. The images and the memories will linger for a lifetime. You must also, you who, has re, who have remained faithful, you must steer clear of any temptation that, that you might face down the road to use the information that you do have to beat up your partner over other issues. The demand is forgiveness. And forgiveness means that I never use those items again against my spouse. Third, it may take years to absorb the emotional impact of what has happened to you. Adultery is not something you're going to get over easily nor quickly. It's important to give yourself enough recovery time. And may I say again, I said years. Years. And you who are the guilty party must understand that your offended spouse may take years in getting over the wounds that you have inflicted. The number one goal for both parties, or for both partners, is to rebuild trust. Can trust be rebuilt? Yes, it can. How? By kept promises, little ones and big ones. That is, I make a promise, if it's little or big, I keep it. If I tell my spouse that I'm going to be home at 6 p.m., I, and I'm not, and I'm, I'm going to be home at 6.10, I make a phone call to warn my spouse that I'm going to be 10 minutes late. I keep my word. Little promises, big promises. They're all kept. And over the months and years, we can rebuild trust. Now, to both of you, here's a word of advice. To any marriage who is listening to me, listen. No friends from the opposite sex can be allowed. Now, I know you don't like hearing that. But it's because you do not fully understand and appreciate the ravages of the doctrine of total depravity. Ladies and gentlemen, if I have a package of dynamite on my back, I don't play around a bonfire. Maybe, maybe I should define what I mean by friends. 
I know that many of you have to deal with members of the opposite sex in business, as customers, etc. I understand that. But what I mean by friends is, I will not enter into a conversation beyond anything except ideas with somebody of the opposite sex. I will not enter into a conversation that allows me to share my deepest feelings. No, 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 no. That's asking for trouble. No friendships with members of the opposite sex. Now, to you who are the guilty party, as bad as it is, it is not unpardonable. To you who have failed, would you look at me? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all. My sin. Sing that to your soul as you worship the God of glory and grace. May we pray. Father, I do pray that your people might be alerted, that they might be warned, that they might believe, not the preacher, but the laws of the God who stand behind the preacher. The preacher is oh so fallible and sinful himself. But you, O God, whom that preacher represents is a God of love and faithfulness and virtue and truth and a God of forgiveness. Might all of us drink deeply from the well, the well created by the finished work of Jesus Christ, which means that all of our sin and all of our woundedness is bound up and addressed by the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God, forgive us that we have ever enthroned anything or anyone other than the God who made us and the God who redeemed us in Christ Jesus. You are our God, and it is our joy and our delight to yield in your presence. O oh God, grant us grace that we might obey. 
Father, if you have led people into this room this morning who have not yet met this Jesus Christ of ours, might they see him in all of his beauty as the one who spilled his blood, the one who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that we might be set free from sin and death. Might he be seen in all of his saving beauty. We pray in Jesus' name.